Well, this week, like many of you and many of your families, I found myself down and out uh, with the worst man cold known to man. It was dark, deep days. And I wasn't sure if I'd be able to preach today, and I wasn't sure if my voice would hold up. And so I told myself before the service, just don't sing. And, uh, well, that didn't work. And so I'm telling myself now to, to just be quiet. I'm going to try to be quiet as I speak today, and we'll see if that works, but I'm not so sure about that one either. Well, we're going to embark today uh, in this first Sunday of the new year. We have the privilege of embarking on a brand new study together. If you're new to the church, we like to just take the word verse by verse, word by word as we go through and and just preach expositionally, expose the meaning of the text, let the text talk. And uh, we're going to begin to do that in 2023 through the book of 1 Peter. And then I, no doubt, when we finish 1 Peter, whenever that is, we'll get into 2 Peter. I don't know how long it will take, but I really want to be careful to cover these faithfully and fully so uh, we will take as much time as, as it's needed. I've chosen the, the epistles of Peter because I think I have come to appreciate the words of Peter in these epistles, these letters, over these last years in my life, perhaps more than any other part of the New Testament. I have been so greatly impacted in my own spiritual life by these letters. I, I just love how Peter writes these letters. He's he writes like a pastor writes to, to the church. I love how Peter speaks out of his years of, of experience. I mean, when he speaks, he speaks with the benefit of having lived these very things that he's calling his readers to obey. There's so much here, church, for you to learn, for all of us to learn together, so much to, to glean together that I believe it will be a great spiritual benefit for all of us in the weeks and months and, and years to come. Thank you very much, Rodney. So what I'd like to do is just get some background to the letter of First Peter, and then we'll get into the meat of what I have for you this morning. The letter was written sometime in the mid-60s A.D., You say, well, big deal. Well, that's really, really important because it helps us understand something. It helps us understand why Peter is writing with so much emphasis on suffering and persecution uh, of the believers. This letter is just absolutely filled with encouragement for suffering believers. If you are in need of encouragement, Praise the Lord. This is the right place for you to be, brothers and sisters. This letter is filled with encouragement for suffering believers. And one of the things that I love about this letter of 1 Peter is that Peter is not bemoaning suffering. He's not lamenting. He's not complaining about suffering. He doesn't bemoan the various trials. Chapter 1, verse 6. He doesn't bemoan the fiery trial. Chapter 4, verse 12. He doesn't bemoan the unjust treatment and suffering for righteousness' sake. He doesn't bemoan being maligned for a holy life. He doesn't lament those things. But instead, he calls his readers to look to that glad day of rejoicing. He said, look, don't look right now at your present suffering But look to that glad day when, quote, His glory is revealed. Chapter 4, verse 13. This is suffering that Peter speaks of. And this suffering, friends, is not a theoretical suffering. It is a very present reality. We know this because of when he was writing, as I said, in the mid-60s A.D. Let me take you to July 19th, 64 A.D. On that day, the city of Rome burned. Now, most people believed that the city was on fire because they were because of, of Roman, the Roman emperor named Nero. You see, 
he had a desire to, to expand Rome, but the Roman Senate was, was opposing him on this. And so when he couldn't get his way, he ordered for the fires to be started. And Rome burnt. Rome absolutely burnt. To, to the delight of, of Nero. I mean, people's homes were lost. People's livelihoods were lost. People's lives were lost. And he was happy because he was going to be able to build Rome in the way that he wanted to do that. But when it became known, or when most people began to think that, you know what, Nero is the one that started this. I mean, it was actually shown that when people tried to put out the fire, Nero squashed that. He kept them from doing it. And so when it became known that, or at least when most people believed that Nero was the one who started the fire, that pretty much embittered Rome against Nero. So he thought, my goodness, what am I going to do? I've got to find a scapegoat. I've got to find someone to blame this fire on. So you know what he did? He blamed the fire on Christians, which was well received in Rome because there was already this kind of of, of virulent uh, uh, hatred towards Jews anyway and Judaism, and they viewed Christianity as being an offshoot of Judaism anyway. And they generally hated Christians. They thought Christians were weird. They thought Christians did things they ought not to do. And so this maniac of a man who ordered the fire of Rome turns around and blames Christians for this fire. And because they were so unpopular in Rome, that rumor was well received. One man said this, as a result of this accusation under Nero, the persecution against Christians began. A Roman historian, Tacitus, reported that Nero rolled Christians in pitch and then set them on fire while they were still alive, and used them as living torches to light his garden parties. He would drape Christians in the skins of wild animals and then set his dogs loose on them so that they could tear them to pieces. They were nailed to crosses. Within a few months, this man went on to say, actually Christians were imprisoned, racked, seared, broiled, burned, scourged, stoned, and hanged. Some were lacerated with hot knives. Some were thrown on wild bull's horns. That persecution which was generated in Rome, this man said, began to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And as it spread, it reached places like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The very places to, whom, uh, to which Peter was writing in this letter, 1 Peter. These people were under constant threat, the constant threat of persecution. This was, they weren't, you know, fearing a man cold. These people were having deep issues with, with persecution and suffering, the ever-present reality of suffering. Yet, Peter has the same purpose in both of his letters. He is concerned with the same thing in both of his letters. In both letters, Peter is concerned about Christian growth. That's what he's writing for. And it is important to, re- to remember this. You will be helped greatly. If, if you want to grow up spiritually, you need to saturate yourself in the letters that Peter writes. Peter is concerned with Christians growing up. Just look at 1 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. Verse 1. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Similarly, he says over in, in his second epistle, in 2 Peter chapter 3, look at these words. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, blemish And at peace, look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he's concerned with. He's concerned with spiritual growth. Listen. The present trials of the Christian life are not at all a hindrance to spiritual growth. In fact, 
those trials can be the very soil in which Christian maturity is incubated. This will be something that we're going to see firsthand in our own lives here as persecution becomes to be, for us, will become more the rule than the exception of life. Trials have a God-directed way of revealing the genuineness of our faith. That's what he says in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So, let me show you 1 Peter chapter 1. With that, just a little bit of a background. I just want to begin reading verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And let's just stop there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want us this morning to dedicate our time to think about that phrase, those words, just that part. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not trying to make this study be longer than it needs to be, but there are some really helpful things here that I don't want us to miss. So we're just going to look at the author of the letter this morning. As I introduce this letter to you, we'll just look at the author. And I want to show you two things about him. I want to look at the man, and I want to look at the ministry. The man and his ministry. And that's exactly what Peter talks to us about here when he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Let's think about Peter, the man. What do you know about Peter? Well, if you start studying a little bit in the New Testament, you'll find in John 1.44 that he was from a, a town called Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the northern side of the shores of the Sea of Galilee. You'd find later in Mark chapter 1 that Peter eventually moved from Bethsaida southwest just a little bit to the town of Capernaum where Peter had a house. Again, he spent almost all of his entire life on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. He was born into a fishing family. His family had a fishing business, which was apparently pretty lucrative. He was married. His father's name was Jonah, or Jonas. He's Simon, the son of Jonah. One of the things that you learn about Peter as you study the New Testament is that Peter was introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of his brother. His brother's name was Andrew. Would you turn with me to John chapter 1 for just a moment? John chapter 1. And I'll show you exactly what takes place here. <clears throat> Excuse me. John chapter 1. Look at verse 35. The next day, again, John, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, who are those two disciples? The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, the, the anointed one. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. You shall be called Peter. Now I suppose that Peter is mentioned more in the Gospels than anyone else other than the Lord Himself. Because of that, we're able to ascertain a number of things about Peter and his life. But it really makes it difficult to summarize his life. So what I want to do is give an effort to just summarize Peter's life. Everything that we find in his life uh, fuels what he says. The, the lessons that he learned in life act as fuel for what he says in his epistles. In other words, the things that he says in his letters come as a direct result of the lessons that he learned in his life. 
And when I think about Peter the man, the first thing that I think about is his call to salvation. His call to salvation. Andrew, Peter's brother, he's a disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist turned the attention of his disciples saying, behold the Lamb of God. And from that moment, Andrew just began to follow Jesus. I mean, literally following Jesus. He was walking behind Jesus. Andrew went and found Peter and told him, we found the Messiah. We found the very one, the anointed one of God. Peter goes to see, and that's when he first met Jesus. And then it's kind of quiet for a little while. We, we don't really know what happens until we pick up the story in Luke chapter 5. So turn there with me very quickly. Luke chapter 5. Peter meets Jesus again. And look what happens in Luke chapter 5 and verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he, this is talking about Jesus, saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from land. He sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking They signaled signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter meets Jesus again. It's this time that it's clear to him that he's in the presence of someone more than just a man. And what is so amazing about this is that Peter is immediately struck with a sense of his own guilt. He is struck with a sense of his own shame. He is struck with a sense of of him being a sinner. And that being driven, can I say being driven to to repentance, is what began his time of being a follower of Christ. They, They had the greatest catch that they had ever experienced and just left it. Together with all the boats, together with all the, they just left. And became followers of Jesus Christ. Again, it's a little bit silent. Then we pick up the story in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. Would you turn there? A familiar passage of Scripture in Matthew 16. By the time you get to Matthew 16, something has happened to Peter. You see, he, he'd been watching Jesus' works. Can you imagine? First-hand account of seeing thousands fed. He'd been listening to Jesus' teaching. And as he's following Jesus, they come to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is a place well known for its entertainment value and, and as a place of religious pagan worship. Jesus says to them, Verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? They said, well, some people say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, some people have sort of religious connotations, but but then he zeroes the question down. You know this very well, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. The Son of the living God. To which Jesus responds, 
that this kind of confession does not come from man, but from God. Blessed are you, he says in verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This kind of confession about the identity of the Lord Jesus cannot come from human explanation, from human roots. This was a divinely revealed truth. The point at which Peter confesses his faith, I am saying to you, I've seen all of these things, and I'm saying to you, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now, I don't think Peter had in his mind all that that had entailed yet at this point. But Jesus says to him, the ability that you have, Peter, to say that I am who I am is something that only came from God. Do you see why Peter, when he's writing his epistle, would say to his readers in chapter 1, you have been born again, not by perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. Do you see why he would say to his readers in 1 Peter 2, you have not received mercy but now you have received mercy. He would say that because he realized that the confession that he made was something that was only made possible by a work of God. Paul would tell us that no one can call Jesus Lord except by what? The Spirit of God. Peter says, you're born again. You're born from above, but you're not born by perishable seed. It's the Word of God working in you to bring you to faith. See, a lot of people say, well, you, you have faith in order to get born again. You want to get born again? If you want to get born again, have faith. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you get born again and you believe. You come to faith. In other words, you say, I started believing that Jesus is, I might not have understood exactly everything the way I, 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 I uh, who he really is, but I started to understand who he is and I confessed that faith in Jesus Christ and the Bible says that that came from someplace else. It did not come from you. Peter wasn't perfect. His life, as you know, is a life of highs and lows, a, a life of ups and downs. And I think that's why many of us love Peter, because he, he, he's a parable for us, right? He is us. The very next section of Matthew chapter 16, the very Lord whom he just commended, whom he just confessed as being the son of the living God, you know what he says? He begins to rebuke Jesus when Jesus talked about his upcoming suffering and death. Far be it from you, Lord, no way. And you know what Jesus said to him? The very same one. This is the same one who, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The very same one. Get behind me, Satan. At one moment, Peter's confessing the truth about Christ, and the next, he is rebuking that same Jesus. You, you know Peter's life, right? At one moment, Peter is professing his courageous love for Christ, and the next, he's denying that he ever knew him. I'm just pointing this out to tell you that when we get into 1 Peter, and you read Peter saying, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, you know that he knows the incredible importance of that. When he tells his readers, your adversary, the devil, is walking around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, you know that there's a very personal reason behind that because he's experienced it. When Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, or when he refers in chapter 4 to, to not fearing being maligned, maligned, 
You know that he knows what he's talking about. You know that he's thinking back to that day when he was warming himself by the fire outside of the courtyard and Jesus is going through his his trials and he doesn't want to be maligned by anybody else so he pretends, he denies that he knows and you know why he's saying these things. When he calls you to live a holy life, when he calls you to give all out effort to grow spiritually, friends, these are not Christian cliches. Oh, how I hate that. I hate it. I'm not supposed to say that. I, 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 I don't like it when I encourage someone to follow Christ diligently and to trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And brother, pray and trust God and read the scriptures. And then somebody says to me, don't you hit me with those Christian platitudes. And I want to say, oh, what are you doing? Stop it. It's not a Christian platitude. This is truth. This is born out of real life experience. It's born out of a lifetime of experience. And that's what Peter's doing. He's writing these letters because he was called into salvation. And his salvation was, yeah, he wasn't a perfect life, but he was called by God. You see, I'm being very quiet today. Not only was he called to salvation, but he's called to service. And let me just cut to this one in John chapter 21. Would you look there with me very quickly? John chapter 21. Jesus appears to the disciples after his resurrection. This will start in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Do you love me more than these? Now, there's a lot of people asking the question, what do you mean love me more than these? Is he saying more than these other disciples? And that could very well be the case because Simon had already proclaimed that to Jesus, right? Though all will be made to stumble, I will never. Maybe he's saying, do you love me more than these? Maybe he's referring to the nets and the boats and the fish because Peter had gone back fishing. We don't know, but do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. And you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. There's a lot that we want to unpack here. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to get bogged down in all the details, but you, you get the picture of what's happening here. Peter had denied Christ three times. Peter had proclaimed his own courageous love for the Lord almost braggadociously. And then he, he in that one moment when, when he caught the eyes of the Lord on that night that Jesus was betrayed, and he went out and wept bitterly, in, in humble repentance, understanding that he was so much nothing, that he had no strength in and of himself, only to, to know that Jesus was raised again and to see him again. And Jesus says, do you, do you love me? Do you, are, are you committed to me? And of course, you know the difference between the words here, uh, uh, 
Jesus says, do you love me? Do you have, do you have an unconditional love for me? And Peter says, oh yeah, Lord, I, I have a really fond affection for you. It's, it's if, as if Peter isn't even willing to, to step out and, and make those professions once again. Yes, Lord, I have a strong affection for you. Do you, do you. Are you committed to me? Yes, Lord, I have a strong affection. Peter, do you have a strong affection for me? And Peter's grieved, not only because he said it the third time, of course, reminding him of his own denial, but do you have a strong affection for me? And Peter can do nothing except throw himself on the omniscient mercy of the king and say, yes, Lord, you know everything. And you know, you know, Lord, in your heart that I love you. Lord, or, uh, Peter, he says, then take care of my flock. You see, it was so imperative for Peter to understand that it was not his flock. The church is not. Peter is not the cornerstone of the church much less the Pope of the church. Because the church is not Peter's, it's Christ's. It's his flock. Then take care of my lambs. Take care of my sheep. But you have to love me. He's called to serve. And did Peter do that perfectly? No. But he made up his mind that he was going to do that only. So that when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, he writes to these dear suffering believers and he points them to the appearing of the great shepherd and he says, whom having not seen, yet you what? You love him. You don't see him, but you love him. Peter understood that loving Christ is absolutely imperative for those who are suffering as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's called to salvation. He's called to serve. And he's called to suffer. If you continue on there in John chapter 21, Jesus said in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified. He was crucified upside down for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is called to suffer. And so when you read that and you understand a little bit about what Peter is going through and what Peter went through, you understand why he would say what he says in his first epistle in chapter 2 verse 21 he says this, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. In chapter 3, he says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. He says in chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. He says in chapter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while. See what I'm saying? Everything in these letters is flowing out of Peter's experience in life. You want to know about suffering? Go to the one Jesus said, you're going to suffer greatly for my name. You want to know about serving? Go to the one who teaches you to be, to, 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 who understands what it is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know about being saved? Go to this one and he'll tell you about it. Jesus said to, to Peter in Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Then Peter says, your trials will prove out the genuineness of your faith. You can always tell those who are genuine believers, whatever fires and trials come in life, they will always draw near to Christ. And everyone else will run away. Everyone else will run away. Peter, the man, 
His calling to salvation, His calling to service, His calling to suffering. There's a second part of that phrase that I want to get to quickly. 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now you probably know that the Lord Jesus Christ selected 12 disciples, right? 12 apostles. They're listed for us four times in the New Testament. Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts chapter 1. Jesus told them, John 15, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Peter says, I'm an apostle. Now the word apostle in its most basic sense just means sent one. It's used as a messenger. So in 2 Corinthians 8.23, Paul speaks of the messengers or the apostles of the churches. It refers to one who has been sent with a message. But most of the time, other than that time, one time in 2 Corinthians 8, when it's used in the New Testament, it is used in a very specific or technical sense as a title, a title for 14 men. Of course, there were the 12 apostles, including Judas, who was discredited, and then one who replaced him named Matthias, He was chosen later to replace Judas when he was discredited. And then, of course, later on, Saul of Tarsus was specifically chosen by Christ. Now, there are people who are arguing whether or not the early church was right to appoint Matthias to that role or wrong. We're not going to get into that in this study. But just know this. When we speak of an apostle, we're speaking very specifically of an office. The apostleship office. Now, you know that there are people today who claim that there is this ongoing line of apostleship. They call it apostolic succession. You've heard of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's what the Catholic Church teaches, that the church, or that the Pope is just in line, an apostolic, uh, in succession in the apostolic line. But more recently, there are also those in the, and you might have heard of this, the New Apostolic Reformation or just called N-A-R. They're the ones that say, they claim that there's a new line of apostles today. They're false teachers. They deny the lordship of Jesus Christ in their lives. Now we see a huge impact of these, this false teaching, even in, not just here in our church, but in our area. You hear lots about Bethel, Bethel Church, Ready California, Bethel Music, even to a lesser degree, perhaps Hillsong or whatever it might be. But you see this impact in what is called today the Dominionist Movement. The Dominionist Movement has infiltrated and influenced tremendously large sections of the church. Particularly, this happens in the Charismatic and Pentecostal groups. Those Charismatic and Pentecostal groups have unfortunately been platformed by political leaders today, even including President Trump. And they have said things like, it is our call to take back dominion in the world, which happens largely through signs and miracles and healings. Now, you'll often hear these false teachers claiming authority. You'll hear them praying, and they'll say, I claim authority over, and they'll say a zip code, or they'll say a, 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 a you know, a, a a city or a town. I claim, I claim this city for Jesus. And they'll make some, some formulaic presentation or whatever it might be. This teaching is fueled by so-called modern day apostles. People who say that they are apostles. That they are in the line of the apostles. However, there is never any evidence that apostles in the Bible were replaced on their death other than Judas, and he wasn't replaced because of death. He was replaced because of defection. If you look at the Scriptures, and I'm thinking about primarily Jude chapter 1, 2 Peter 3, and Hebrews chapter 2, but others, those, those, three, those three specifically. If you look at those Scriptures, they speak of apostleship in the past tense, as if it's something that was but is no longer, even in the New Testament. 
In Acts chapter 1, verse 12, you have the account of the qualifications for someone to be an apostle. So what were they? They had to be with Jesus during the whole three years that Jesus was among them. In order to be qualified, this man needed to be an eyewitness of Jesus' baptism, one who heard the teachings of Christ and was able to see his miracles. He needed to have himself witnessed Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, and to have seen Jesus walk and talk and eat among the disciples after his resurrection. Without those qualifications, no one would have ever been called an apostle in the New Testament. But beyond those qualifications, there are some characteristics. Not everyone was qualified to be an apostle. Not everyone had the characteristics of an apostle. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2 that there are the signs of a true apostle. And what's that refer to? It refers to mighty works, wonders. There were false apostles who were claiming to be apostles, showing themselves with this great glitz and glamour and and all of these amazing things that they were doing, but they were not genuine authoritative signs from God. The office of an apostle was a temporary office appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of laying the foundation of the universal church. Now question, when you're building a building, how many foundations do you need to lay? You need to lay one. Peter was appointed, an appointed temporary messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of laying the foundation for the universal church. You only lay the foundation one time. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's interesting. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 refers to apostles who live in rags, not riches. Live in poverty, not prosperity. Live in suffering, not success. They were scornfully treated. Theirs was a life of sacrifice. Theirs was a life of suffering. Not the glitz and splendor and spectacular things that we see on the television in front of us today. When Peter calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, I am a temporary appointed messenger, appointed for the foundation, to lay the foundation of the church. Which leads me to tell you a little bit about the ministry of an apostle. Would you look with me at a couple of passages of Scripture? First, go to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We'll look at John 14, 15, and 16. And then we'll close out with a few more. John 14, 26. Fourteen twenty-six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all All that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit comes. He's going to bring to remembrance all the things that I have said to you. Look at chapter 15. Verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me From the beginning. And then chapter 16. Verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes. He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears he will speak. And he will declare to you. The things that are to come. In other words. The Holy Spirit is going to be sent. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to be sent. And his primary role is not. So that you might be slain in the Spirit, so that you might have all these ecstatic gifts. The great the, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to point you to, to me, Jesus says, by reminding you of who I am and what I have said. What is the ministry of an apostle? The ministry of an apostle is the ministry of the word. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, the apostles' doctrine. Acts chapter 6. There's this problem going on in the church. There are some people who, the, some of the widows are being left out of the daily feedings and problems are being brought to the apostles. And the apostles said to the church, listen, it's not good for us to leave the ministry of the what? Of the word. So appoint for yourselves seven men full of the Holy Spirit who can take care of this. And we'll give ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 14. And he gave some to be apostles, pastors, teachers, prophets, for the sake of building up of the church, so that you might come to the full maturity in Christ. You would not be torn about and tossed about like children, deceived by every cunning error that comes down the pike. What is the ministry of an apostle? The unique ministry of an apostle was to build the foundation for you, God's church. And that came through the written, abiding Word of God. Go back with me one more time to 1 Peter, then we'll be finished. 1 Peter chapter 1. Excuse me. Look at verse 12. 1 Peter 1, 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In things that have now, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. There were people, he says, who preached the good news to you as they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. What is that good news? Look at verse 24, chapter 1. For all, uh, 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 chapter 1, verse 23. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What is the ministry of the apostle? The ministry of the apostle was bringing forth the living, abiding word by which you are born again. And so what does Peter say in chapter 2? He says, so guys, desire the word. Desire the pure milk. Uh, desire that which is spiritually nourishing you, to you so that you can grow up from being a baby to mature adulthood. Why? Because you shouldn't stay a baby. You shouldn't stay in infancy in your understanding of who Christ is. God has given the apostles to the church those who were appointed as temporary messengers to bring the Spirit-prompted message of the gospel to bear on our lives. These were the men who preached the gospel to us whereby we must be saved. One more. Just look back. I know I keep saying one more. One more. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 15, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to at any time to recall these things. Why? Why are you making every effort, Peter, so that we can recall these things? Well, he says, well, we've, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables. When, when, we, when, when God made known to us the majesty of Christ, we heard his voice from heaven. We saw the glory of Jesus Christ with our own eyes. But we have the prophetic word more fully conferred. We have the more sure word. 
And why is he so diligent to provide for us this word? Why is he so diligent to make sure to do everything he can until his dying day? I'm going to make sure that I always remind you of these things. Why? Because. Chapter two, or chapter 1 of 2 Peter. He said, I want to keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. If anyone knew what it was to be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, Peter knew that. Always doing this up and down and up and down and in and out and all around. And he said, I don't want you to be ineffective. I don't want you to be unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to write this down so that you can be reminded of these truths. So you can be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that you can grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the ministry of an apostle. To give us the word, the abiding Word of God, the complete Word of God. Listen, you don't need Sarah Young, Jesus Calling, right? You don't need that. You got it all right here. And I'm not trying to bash anyone. I'm just saying, do not deny this. Do not neglect this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord. God worked to bring the message of salvation to my little heart and yours too. He will gather and he will will build his church all the way up until that final day. He'll build his church. Praise the Lord. Well, he provided through the apostles this firm foundation for your fruitful Christian life. And that's what we're going to learn about in 1 Peter. The fruitful Christian life. In spite of suffering, trials, unjust treatment, right? He's not telling us how to organize a protest here. Not telling us how to do anything else. He's telling us how to live in the midst of hindrances and difficulties, trials as a Christian. And that's what I want to say to you. My prayer for you, dear church, the people I love the most in this life, is that you'll live like a Christian lives. Let's pray. Just these few moments and these few words, O oh Lord, and our hearts are greatly encouraged. We want to live our lives for you. So thankful for how you've called us into salvation and For those who are here today who've never known the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you're pricking their hearts even right now to confess their sin. They they understand that there's something about Jesus Christ that, that draws them to see their guilt and shame. I pray that they would come all the way to Christ to believe on Him and, and be saved. I pray that you'll help us as Christians, not to be ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of Christ, but to live all out for you till the day that Christ comes again. Thank you for this, your word. We give you praise and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand together and look?